Hello, and let's be honest. Muhammad Alasi has had a lot of jobs. He's been a community youth worker, a Greens politician, a stand-up comedian, a reality TV contestant, and he's a regular commentator for the ABC. So why so much variation? Well, it's because Muhammad is a well-spoken, so-called level-headed Muslim, a rare breed within the Australian media. I sat down with Mo in 2015 for the Boyish podcast to talk about his varied career, including the time he ran as a Greens candidate, appeared as a contestant on The Amazing Race, his short stint as a stand-up comic, and whether all this would have been possible if he wasn't Muslim. I'm joined today by politician, comedian, community youth worker, reality TV contestant, and, uh, and, uh, Muslim correspondent for every single news outlet here in Australia, Muhammad Alasi. Thanks so much for joining me today, Mo. It's a pleasure and uh, it's a very generous introduction. Do you have a LinkedIn profile? I do, yes. Uh, what does it say you do on there? Like that must be a, uh, that just must be pages and pages of, uh, of a re- <laughs> like have you been endorsed for all these skills? I Well, I tend, the problem with my, my LinkedIn page is I do have, a few of those things on there and um, because it's so mixed up, people are like, yeah. we don't really know what to employ you for. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it tends to be sort of, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. But uh, <laughs> Oh, come on. I don't think that's true. Or maybe master of one. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, what would you say, like, what did you start out doing? Like, so, you went to uni, presumably, or...? Well, actually, I started off as a youth worker. Uh, so without, oh, right. So, that was the beginning. That was the beginning for me. And it was sort of the time when, I guess, the whole Muslim problem, you know, quote, unquote, the was taking Muslim off. from it. Yeah. What year was that? When abouts was that? 2007 was actually when it really? all happened. Really? That's so, so recent. Yeah. So, actually, between 2001 and 2007, there wasn't really as much of an obsession in the media or by politicians or, or anything, but it sort mm. of hit that point and everyone just became obsessed about it. And it was What constant- began that, though? Was that the, um, uh, this uh, what was it again, the uh, thing in Western Sydney? Uh, what happened in Western Sydney in 2007? Or, yeah. Um, I actually don't think it was re- – it wasn't related to a terrorist attack. I think mm. what ended up happening in 2007 was a lot of politicians – felt that they could politicise the issue. So, in that year, you had Peter Costello coming out saying, if you don't love Australia, go back to Iran. Um, and you had Bronwyn Bishop also starting to talk about the headscarf as something that... Oh, sorry, the, originally the headscarf and then the, the burqa as something that should be banned. So, it that was the year that the conversation stopped being about terrorism and now more about, you know, halal meat and Muslims taking over the country. And... Uh, uh, even Kevin Rudd, who was running as a candidate at that time, mm. couldn't really push it in the other other way. So he tended to, yeah. he sort of had to go along with the ride. Uh, and I guess ever since then, we've probably spoken less about terrorism and more about all these other, you know, clash of cultures and other things. Yeah. So being a youth worker at the time, um, and that sort of kind of got me into that whole world and having to talk about it as well because they were so desperate for people to, yeah. to have a voice. Uh, for experts. Yes, quote-unquote yeah. experts. Are you an expert just because just you're Muslim? Or? <laughs> well, it tends to be like that because the media, the problem with journalists these days is they don't, they don't have in-depth relationships in communities outside of what they know, mm. um, which obviously tend to be pretty much, you know, middle class and white. So if they ever have to go out of that, it's a very shallow thing. They kind of just pick up the phone book and or tends to be whoever's in their address book, they'll just go back to them. Uh, and for some, what ended up happening is the actual Muslim spokespeople, because they were so inundated with, with stuff, they ended up having to parcel stuff off as well uh, to, to other people. So, I so just you kind got of, the call. I got on the, I got on the, the gravy train. And, <laughs> and it's, it's really, it feels really dirty because you just become this kind of talking head for what are pretty serious issues and you have to convey something that's quite deep in 20 seconds. Yeah, how did you deal with it in those early days? Because presumably, like, it would have been a bit of a learning curve as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what ended up happening <laughs> those days was, you know, Muslim spokespeople, you know, okay, you've had a terrorist attack or you've had something that's gone on and uh, you, you've got to talk, like, everyone's really upset. It's like these crazy Muslims, what are they doing? And you come out into the media and what 
a lot of Muslim spokespeople did at the time was say things like Islam's a religion of peace. Right? It's like you know, it's a nice little bumper sticker saying, mm. "Well, after you know your twentieth terrorist attack, no one's listening to that anymore." Yeah. So, and then you're like, "Yeah, that's that doesn't make sense, right?" So then you've really got to go dig deep and go, "Okay, why is this happening? What's causing all these issues?" And I think for me as a youth worker, I was actually working with kids that were sort of going down that path. So I could try and explain a little bit of what I thought might be causing that. But then you also have this, you know, this pushback from people that are like, no, there's no complexity to this issue. It's just Islam's a violent ideology that wants to take over the world. So you've kind of having to debate that quite yeah. a bit, which it's still happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's especially because, yeah, if you read into anything, if you open your ears, like every single time there's an attack, every single time there's a conversation about um, Muslims, we hear that it's a peaceful religion. We hear that the ideals of it on paper, it's like, yeah, it doesn't, there's nothing necessarily saying, you know, go out and commit a terrorist attack. There's nothing like that. But it's what rises up at the end of the day, no matter how many times we hear how peaceful it is. Um, how, so where did you go from from there? Was it youth worker straight into media figure, etc.? Or because you have had quite a varied, varied career from there. Well, from from that, I decided. I guess 2007 was also my year where I thought um, I want to make a difference and. Politics seemed like a really interesting thing mm. to, to me. And the I, year I of Kevin that, 07 as well. Well, that's right. And what ended up happening in that year was I was looking at all this, you know, John Howard saying stuff and Peter Costello and all, you know, the liberals were, were pretty much going, uh, I think for me as a, as a young Muslim kid watching that going, well, these guys seem to, you know, lifting the tone in a certain direction that I wasn't very comfortable with. And, and I was, again, we have no idea why they did that. Like... I think there was a national kind of sense. I mean, internationally, around the world, people were feeling very uneasy now about this whole Islamic terrorism stuff. So mm. it was very easy, and we see it's only increased ever since then. Now you've got the Rise Up Australia Party and all these other groups, Reclaim Australia and all that. Um, so I think that's what they were sort of Jesus latching Christ. onto. Yeah. You had, but you had, I mean, 2007 was also the year where you had a Liberal MP, um, a li an endorsed Liberal a member of Parliament, actually a, an Assistant Minister, publishing pamphlets that were saying about how Islam's going to taking over the country and they put the Labor Party logo on it. Um, I've got a name, Jackie, Jackie something, which will come to me. But um, so it was a crazy year. And I and mm. I thought, okay, the Liberals are doing this stuff. Um, she was actually disendorsed for that um, afterwards. Right. But then you also had the Labor Party as well kind of saying the same things. They weren't really pushing back too hard. So I ended up joining the Greens that year, um, which were, t to their credit, kind of the only party that, at least on this issue, had a bit more backbone. Mm -hmm. And that was a really fascinating um, experience because you go into the Greens and everyone's really kind of like, yeah, let's fight racism. And let's, <laughs> yeah. you know, let's, you know, let's all be comrades and, uh, you know, it's all these crazy conservatives and all that stuff. And what ended up happening, though, after a few months in the Greens, uh, I realised that I was also kind of like their precious little, uh, I guess, addition to that because they, 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 they felt like I was – I almost felt like the poor Muslim child that they were kind of oh. – uh, I didn't feel empowered in the Greens. I ended up feeling like I was kind of – they would kind of use me to justify why the Liberals and Labor are kind of so racist. And Yeah, like you were used to sort of – attract that demographic of voters as well. You, you do feel like a bit of a, a bit like you're a victim and they mm -hmm. don't, they kind of sort of latch onto this whole idea that, you know, and things are difficult and that's fine and they want to help, but but then also you've got to help empower people to, to stand up to that and to, and to change things as opposed to simply being, you know, this is our token Muslim person and yeah. uh, look how great we are, you know. this. So, yeah. so that was kind of something that, you know, and look, I, I still have a lot of respect for the Greens. I think they and that's they politics, I guess. Like, exactly, they are a political party at the end of the day, and you've got to play politics. Yeah, that's a good. It's a good point. I think everyone in politics is a prop. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, how long did you stay with the Greens? So, I was with the Greens for probably about three or four years, and I ran as a candidate for them uh, in the local government elections. And then you pulled out, didn't you? Uh, no. So, local government, I, I ran. I missed out by 60 votes oh. out of 13,000, which was... Oh. Um, but for... I was running in Darabin, which is Preston. It's sort of um, yeah. inner northern Melbourne. Oh, a bit, actually, a bit out of... Sort of mid, middle north, I guess you'd say. Mm -hmm. um, and no one expected to have 
that many votes. So um, it was kind of really exciting to get that close. Mm. Uh, and then they endorsed me to run for the state seat of Preston, and uh, which was not a winnable seat, but it was still nice that they, they thought I could carry that on. And then the amazing race came up. And oh, <laughs> I didn't realise that's why. Okay, that's so why. yeah. So how far into running were you? Well, this is the thing. I just started and I'd only, I'd been ringing up journalists like desperately, like the local journalists, like, you know, let's do something. I've got, I want to share some ideas. And, yeah. and they were like, nah, not interested, not interested, nah, wow. nah, nah, nah. Ooh. And then I thought, well, we hadn't published any flyers. We hadn't done anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, all that had happened was, I had been endorsed and that was it. And I sat there with this really difficult decision because you're saying, okay, I could run in this seat and not win it. Or I can go on the amazing race and it can be the first time, even from a serious perspective, you're going, you know, this is the first time in Australia that really anyone kind of, even you could say non-white, but really, let's say more broadly, a Muslim person, mm. which is such a hot topic, could go on national television and not be the token Muslim, or, well, or not just talk about Muslim issues, could actually be themselves. And I thought, well, what would be a better thing to do? So I, um, I decided to go with The Amazing Race. And of course, the journalists <laughs> then got absolutely frantic, like ringing me up like, yeah, every they time, wanted to talk to you. going, why, why, why are you not running? Why? And then the Labour Party... Sent set up a rumor that I had left the green. Oh, I had left the Greens because Sharia law does no longer agree with the Greens policy, or I don't believe in Greens policy because of Sharia law. So that's to put Whoa. it more articulate. So I was getting calls from the Herald Sun, going, "Is it true that you've left the Greens because of Sharia law?" And I'm like, <laughs> "No, this is not what's happened." And could I, you tell them that it was because of the no, Amazing Race at that's, that's that time? That's the yeah, problem, right. I'd, signed, I'd signed a confidentiality yes, agreement. Yes, because on reality shows, it's this big long process yeah, before so you get cast. They could sue me for four million dollars if i'd uh, if oh, i oh, ex- if i told anyone where i was going yeah so oh my so god no one could find out and then yeah what ended up so go on the amazing race everything's still quiet and then of course and this is why i just especially the local media kind of annoy me a bit because what ended up happening is as, as soon as the amazing race uh, amazing race was announced mm. and they said okay uh you're now you know it's mo is a candidate mm-hmm. uh, so so a contestant. As soon as it was announced that Mo's a contestant on the Amazing Race, yeah. the journalist rings me up and is like, "Yeah, we got you. Now we know. We now we know what you did." And they published a front page story of me on the local, uh, the Preston Leader, going, "What in the world? You know, Greens candidate leaves um, electorate to go on, you know, trashy reality TV show." <laughs> And I was like, come on, when I wanted to talk to you about important issues in the electorate, you, you completely ignored all my calls. And yeah. then as soon as this happens, it's like front page news. And that was kind of like, oh, well, that's that's the Preston leader. But to, to be fair, like the next best story they had was like a school fate. So <laughs> yeah, I can't really complain. that. I, I adore that, though, because it's just like you've got politics on the one hand using you as, you know, the token Muslim person to for political gain. They're playing politics. And then you've got these journalists that now have a story. <laughs> exactly. And they're, they're playing journalism. Exactly, exactly. That is a hilarious clashing of two different things together. So how did you go on The Amazing Race? Yeah, pr- look, um, pretty, pretty... Which is the name that you, I think you, if you've ever published a book, book, it should be called The Amazing Race because <laughs> isn't that really the underlying factor of most of your career now? Would, it's would, all about race. You were on The Amazing Race. Yeah, well, it's... It's kind of interesting because we were really hopeless on the, on the race, which is also... <laughs> Who'd you probably, go on with? Was it a best friend? Yeah, was it was it? a friend of mine. Yeah. Um, and I think I was really lucky. Well, actually, what ended up happening was I had another friend that I was going to go with mm-hmm. uh, who's a comedian, a funny guy, a really nice guy, uh, and he pulled out. And so... Because he had to run for the Greens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. He's uh, he, he joined One Nation or something. So yeah. <laughs> one na- so um, I, I ended up having no one to go with. And I was really worried that, oh, I'm, I'm not going to be able to go on The Amazing Race. So they rang me out there. They were like, look, we, you know, we really want you to go. But can you find someone else to, to join you? So I started ringing up all my friends. And they're like, hey, do you want to come with me on The Amazing Race? And no one actually believed me. So <laughs> everyone's kind of... And then you had people going, oh, I don't have any annual leave. Or no, I'm not sure. And no one... No one was interested and wow. so I rang I probably rang up about 30 people and couldn't find anyone I was really despondent wow. and I rang up this one friend he said oh why don't you ask 
our friend Mustafa, who was a friend, but we weren't like, we were kind of like, we hadn't spoken to each other for a while. Okay. So I rang him up and poor guy had just got a new job. But he's such a, he's got such a wonderful spirit to him. He's like, yep, I'm quitting my job. I'm coming with you. Oh my God. (laughs) How long was he in this job for? (laughs) Probably like two weeks, I think. (laughs) So he was earning good money though. It was a bit of a shame. So we, uh, he, 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 we end up going in and they loved him and because we're both very similar we're kind of a bit we're, we're a bit overweight a bit slow but also kind of very relaxed people yeah. so technically the worst people you could have on a show <laughs> where you have to run yeah. and literally across weight. the world yeah, yeah. And, yeah and like really quite seriously make decisions yeah. on what you're going to do so uh <laughs> we the race started and it was sort of you know there was like 11 helicopters landing on the mcg and then it's like race to melbourne airport and you you know first spot stops in indonesia and so we spend two days racing in the first leg and of course we come last and we're on this we're on the gilly islands and we're you know going on this donkey to the finish line and he's like man i quit my job for this oh. <laughs> and i'm like yeah i i, I'm, I feel really bad i don't know what to do anyway was so, this on the show yeah this was uh, the first episode we, we're last and we get to the finish line and get grant um bowler who's the host is like you know mo and moss you're the last to arrive but thankfully it's a non-elimination round <laughs> so which i read as them kind of wanting to keep us <laughs> yeah for a yeah, little yeah. bit longer so the second the second episode we did okay third episode we came second last fourth episode we came second last and then the fifth episode we we just Oh, yeah, yeah. Which, that's pretty good to make it five episodes, though. Yeah, I have to say, luck was really on our side up until the very end. So yeah, we, right. uh, you know, and I think I would have, I was kind of happy to go at that point because okay. it, on the Amazing Race, it's a really grueling experience. Yeah, and it would have been exhausting. I'm guessing it's it's you know they because the what's the process like, like as well? Like how long do you have to do all of that? Like, well, you get eight hour breaks in between. Or, or maybe ten hour break. Sorry, but everything's pretty much go go go. Um, you there is a bit of waiting around at airports, but you don't sleep properly at it really. So mm. you're jet lagged. You don't know what day it is. You don't know what country it is, and you have to run like pretty much like ten twelve k a day. So it just sounds like insanity. It is, and you start to look at the other contestants afterwards, uh, and they're people are going mad. And like, what was the prize? It's two hundred fifty thousand dollars, oh. which which would have been nice. But I think we also went into it realizing we're probably never going to get that. So yeah, yeah. But reality TV is, I think for me, it was a really good experience because you know putting in the context of all that media hysteria that's going on elsewhere, it was for a lot of people the first time that they could see you know two overweight Muslim people kind of just being themselves, not necessarily having to be Muslim, just kind of just being normal people and it gave them i think that experience or that that exposure to that and of course after that happened everyone else then got completely obsessed with it and then master chef went and like had a muslim person on basically every episode and then they did the mole and they had to have it's a muslim person on. yeah and it was like and everyone was like yeah where's where's our muslim and i actually had <laughs> i actually had producers from other networks ringing me up and going can you find us some Muslim contestants? And I it just of- seems like you instantly become a go-to person once people find out that you can talk. Yeah, you're, they're, they're like you're a Muslim. It's like, like, do you have more of these? Are there more Muslims <laughs> that can talk and like, yes, not be crazy? Go out into your community. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so you finished the amazing race. Uh, what's the next progression from there? Well. It was it was pretty much uh, after that. I was pretty stable. I just I just mm-hmm. became the the talking head. That was that was it. So uh, I started on News Breakfast uh, a little bit after that, yep. and uh, started doing a regular segment there where I'd uh, go in and read the papers and and talk about the news and yeah. Well, uh, when did you start that? Was this uh, probably at the this? same time? Um, I, I think it was about twenty eleven or twenty twelve. Right. Cool. Yeah. So. And they still haven't kind of uh, sacked me yet. But yeah. it's, uh, I mean, that's been interesting because I guess whenever you speak publicly about any opinions, you're automatically going to get people that are quite happy to contact you on Twitter and tell you you're an mm. idiot or tell you you're great. And it's it's a pretty big responsibility. I think like so much of our culture hinges on this idea of you know, honouring the talking head and, you know, having a voice in the public square. But... I've started to actually lose interest in it because you start to think, well, who am I to really to go out there and have to put this opinion forward? And, you know, yeah. we have these, and it's a, we, we live in a world where it's quite, um, I guess, 
we love to debate, which is lovely, which is fine, but it, it, it does get a bit tiring sometimes always having to justify your position when you're just a citizen, really. Yeah, but that seems to be the scary thing. I mean, you've appeared everywhere. You've appeared, you know, on the project, Sky News, you know, Sunrise, you're on Channel 7 earlier today, you're on News Breakfast, you know, once a week, once every couple of weeks, um, all because you were a visible Muslim, like you were you know, all because of those um, early days as a youth worker where they just had to have you on. And since then, and also you're a reality TV contestant, so some people might remember you. But this whole idea in the media of having a voice, having an expert kind of voice, as they definitely refer to you on there. I mean, what's that like? Like, say this morning, for instance, so you got called to go on Channel 7 for something. How does that process begin? And what do you do if you don't know that much about that issue or don't have an opinion on it? Well, it, it's it's really nerve-wracking because I got a call this morning from a journalist that says, okay, this story is broken up about some students that are being exempt from singing the national anthem because of some religious holiday that they follow. And you sit there and, well, first, I don't know anything about the story, so you've got to rush and kind of read Yeah, read yeah. It. And then you, you've got to uh, sort of sit there and go, well, okay, what, what do you say about this when you have to talk about it from, okay, a Muslim perspective, but what does that mean? There are half a million Muslims in Australia. Everyone's got their own perspective. And you're not a leader. You're just... And, and there is no leadership in the Muslim community. It's a very egalitarian... Uh, eagle, what's the word? It's very equal. Egalitarian. That's right, I can't say that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very equal... Uh, there's no leadership. There's no hierarchy as opposed to, say, the church or um, other religions. So you kind of have to try and be what you would hope is the voice of reason mm. to accept, not to sort of push against it or for it, but to kind of give people a broader perspective on this. And sometimes I find the, the, the saddest thing about it is when you go into an interview and you say, yeah, Muslims are all different or, um, you know, that person acts as an individual and not representative of the community, which is the truth, right? People are amazed at that. <laughs> And, like, today I was making really? a point about but how... I hear this literally every time something happens, though. Every time there's a conversation about ISIS, every time there's a conversation about some random attack or some random, you know, Zaki Mala saying something stupid that's blown out of proportion, and we hear just a thousand people say, this isn't representative of the entire community, but- it's a peaceful religion, but then we hear one loud voice say... The opposite. Uh, I think we actually hear about 10,000 voices saying the opposite. Which really? is The problem is people say, it's all those Muslims, they're all the same, they're all doing this, and then you get one person coming and going, no, actually we're a pretty diverse you know, community and one person But we do hear that. I think that's the most intriguing thing, is that if you watch the news, you, there, there is that opinion always there, but then just the louder one it stays with you. You yeah. walk away from it having heard that and going either having some sort of a reaction to it. I think there's still so many Australians that would probably stick, which like surprises me go, yeah, you know what I mean? To that kind of thing going, yeah, God, it's just, it's undeniable that the, that religion is, there's something wrong with it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and that's the real battle because, and this is why we're starting to get a bit fatigued about this whole situation because to us, it's normal it, you, that you would, why would you, group a whole bunch of people together and not see it more as an individual. Now, of course, people say, yes, but I don't see other religions doing that. But also, you do see other people going to criminal activity for whatever reason. Like, if people latch onto Islam, just as people latched onto Marxism, uh, you know, 30 years ago, or whatever, or what we're seeing now as well is people latching onto white supremacist ideology as Mm -hmm. well. uh, that why would you, like, if it makes sense to me, for example, like we saw uh, not too long ago in Sweden, a, a white supremacist went and, you know, did a horrible attack with some swords. I don't yeah. look around and go, yeah, there's something wrong with white people. You know, like, I just know that that's a crazy individual that's you know, taken on white supremacy and their hatred of multiculturalism to do something very, very criminal. Uh, but it doesn't seem to go the other way. So when you turn around and you actually say to people, yeah, it's, that's an individual who has used Islam for their own crazy reasons, 
then that's mind blowing to people. It's like what a revelation! You you know you just talk such common sense. <laughs> and and like, that is the scariest thing. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a break in a sec, but I just have one final question in this segment. So, Virginia Trioli is my hero. <laughs> And I think I have an unhealthy because people tell me I've got an unhealthy obsession with her, but I just I I love her. Um, what's she like in person? <laughs> you know, I get asked this question quite a lot, and this is the host of ABC News Breakfast, by the way. Yeah, we we have. I mean, she still terrifies me after four or five <laughs> years of knowing her. Yeah, uh, right. but we we have a really good uh, relationship. Uh, I mean, I was last time I was in there, she my sleeves were a bit long. And she basically just told me off and she said, uh, here's where you can buy some good shirts. And she like rattled off five names that I can't remember because, you know, it was like three seconds before into air. But that's what she's like. She just she feels very comfortable kind of uh, she, smothering me a little bit. She's a bit like uh, a mum or older sister, I guess. So Oh, that's uh, cute. But she has very little tolerance for for nonsense which is yeah which is refreshing i think sometimes I think that's what i totally yeah. respect about her but yeah again that other thing of just like she she knows exactly she knows her things as well like yeah. she's you you feel like she she does live here in melbourne and she has her places to go and stuff yeah. like that but i think the thing that like definitely sums up that terrifying thing is that a few months ago she was like going out to her car to get to abc new Bristol news breakfast in the morning and she found a robber in her car Going through her stuff, had broken into her car, had slept there overnight. And instead, does she call the police? No. She goes, hey, (laughs) what are you doing? Stand up, stand over there. Literally through her power, her, just through her, uh, just her personality gets him to wait there until the police came. Which none of us would dare do. Would ever do. (laughs) Terrifying. But my hero. Exactly. Tell me about your career in comedy, well, Mo. It depends who you ask. But um, I, I did. That was another thing I, I sort of did, and I think it was hard not to with that whole time where the Muslim issue was was so prominent. And I think we all, a few of us, sort of saw this as an opportunity to, again, try and use comedy, which is a really great language to take complex issues and show the absurdity of of things. So yeah. uh, a few friends of mine. And, so this is about in 2007. Isn't it was it? yeah. So at the same time, uh, we we a few of us got into comedy, stand up comedy, and uh, I mean my other friends kind of did really well. They they sort of uh, one of them was kind of touring the world. The other one's got his own TV show. I'm I'm just doing news breakfast, but <laughs> <laughs> and not actually not doing comedy. But um, yeah, there was there was definitely a real appetite there in in society as well for people to hear these issues being kind of laughed at as well. And I have to say, John Howard was a godsend for for (laughs) political comedy because it was a time where I think you you did have a lot of crazies out there in the political world saying stuff or doing things and you could kind of unpack it a little bit. Uh, so I did comedy for a few years. I did a, a show in the in the Melbourne Comedy Festival. I did a show in the Fringe. I did two shows in the Melbourne Fringe Festival, uh, and then my final show was at Falls Festival uh, with about sixteen thousand, um, you know, nineteen year olds basically. Yeah, just a measly sixteen thousand. Yeah. Well, what what made it worse was this is when I kind of gave up on comedy. Was I started doing all these jokes about, you know, terrorism and 9-11 and sure. stuff and kind of got 16,000 blank faces staring at me. Like, oh. the, this is material that works would work solidly anywhere else. Like, it was all the best material I had. And yeah. you, go, you go to a music festival and you talk about these issues and no one laughs. And you're like, oh, uh, okay. And... Then I realized that half of these kids were like five years old when 9-11 happened and they like music festivals. They don't really care about politics and, yeah. you know, complex intercultural relationships. Especially not at Falls Festival when they're all <laughs> fucking high and yeah, just and absolutely gone. That tends to help. Yeah, that's, that <laughs> tends not to help. Um, so, and then I kind of realized that um, when I started making like slightly racist jokes mm. that they would absolutely pissed themselves and i was like oh okay this is what this audience is kind of and yeah i i thought well i don't definitely don't want to be a racist comedian so <laughs> i tended to i thought i'll just wait for this issue i think this issue is done yeah and right well yeah i suppose 9 11 in 2007 by that point younger people know so 
You got out of comedy after that? Yeah, I got out of comedy. Didn't really feel like it was much of a national issue um, or international issue. Of course, until ISIS popped up. Now it's kind of all back in the media again. But uh, yeah, we had some quiet years under, especially under, I think Rudd and Gillard kind of helped move mm. the uh, national conversation away from that. Maybe also because they just uh, had their own other problems to deal with that True. weren't Muslims. Yeah, so. we'll, we'll address that a little bit later. Um, uh, so, uh, politicians now, though, uh, are there more racist politicians than there were back in 2007, or are there less? I think in mainstream politics, there's less. People, I think we've moved massively as a society. People, I think, are starting to understand a little bit more of the nuances of this. But the problem is there are more opportunists on the fringe of politics that are trying to use this for their own advantage. Mm. So we see a lot of these right-wing parties popping up now, like the Australian Liberty Alliance and the Rise Up Australia Party and, you know, Patriots Front and all these groups. And then you do get the odd sort of, you know, coalition backbencher throwing up some statement. But it's not as bad as it was say, in 2007, when you had the front bench kind of making all these comments. So now it's kind of like, you know, the Cory Bernardis and the George Christensen's and, you know, maybe the Jackie Lambies um, saying things. The people that we already know are crazy as well, like in most cases. Yeah, the people that... They need to make noise. Strong opinion, controversial. And, Mm. I mean, the thing like George Christensen is, you know, the third line of his Twitter bio is like, for media comment, call this number. Like, not he doesn't say, you know, if you're a constituent and you need me, call this number. It's, It's... They are kind of... It seems that they're desperate for media attention for whatever reason that they have as an ins- or whatever insecurity they might have as a as a politician um, and i think a lot of them try and justify it as like no no this is very important to my electorate um, it's like i mean george christensen gave a gave a speech in parliament a couple of days ago where he was talking about honor killings right and uh, muslims uh, you know making excuses for honor killings and i just thought well i'm sure in your elect you know that's fine i i agree with you on honor killings and i'd love to see the end of that but in your electorate in Mackay, I'm sure there's probably more women dying from domestic violence than there is from honour killings. So I'm not saying don't talk about honour killings, but you'd think that you might want to start talking about real things that matter to your electorate. Uh, And you just don't see that. So I think that's the problem with a lot of politicians is they try and use that issue to boost up their own profile. But you could also just focus on the things that matter to your community. Uh, The best thing I ever heard was from Wyatt Roy, uh, who's also from like Longman in North Queensland. And he, I was talking to him one day and he said he gets all these people coming up to him talking about the burqa and how they're so worried about the burqa taking over this country. And they're like, you know, why you got to ban the burqa. You gotta ban, and he's like, he says, he tells them, he goes, look, have you ever seen the burqa in Longman? And they're like, well, well no. Like, <laughs> well, then I don't need to worry about it as an <laughs> You know, and that's wow. kind of, I think, the difference of leadership. While, you know, five or six years ago, every MP would have just been like, yeah, everyone in my electorate cares about the burqa. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, well, do they need to? Yeah. Is that an issue for the community? How yeah. has social media changed the conversation around those issues? It, I guess social media is a tool, so it goes good and bad. <laughs> it's given everyone a, a louder microphone. That's true. So you tend to see a lot of Twitter accounts popping up where they don't have any face uh, and their whole Twitter bio is like stopping the Islamization of Australia. I'm sure I said that wrong, but you know, and, and that's, uh, and they're obsessed about that issue, right? That's how they, and that's, and that's all they tweet about. And, and, and what ends up happening, which is I think quite dangerous is that those people that really do think, you know, the Muslim armies are coming to take over Australia and spread Sharia law everywhere and behead everybody, uh, they live now in an echo chamber on Twitter and Facebook, which now means that they literally think that they are quite a prominent voice when it might only be 20,000, 30,000 people just talking to each other in a country of 20 million people. Um, and I think... The same thing with those that might be pro-multiculturalism as well is that they everyone ends up talking into a silo. So I don't really... I think social media has the potential to be used for good where people can start to exchange ideas and share viewpoints. But I don't think we're at that at the point. People love confirmation bias. They want to believe that everybody agrees with them. And I do worry about the impact on social media on people's mental health where... Mm. They believe that Sharia law is about to take over the country, which is just delusional. But 
thanks to all their other friends on social media, they then believe that it's actually a reality. Because it's trending. What did you think of, uh, so earlier in 2015, um, we had this Q&A incident where uh, Zaki Muller spoke up on behalf of, and this is driven by, you know, Tony Abbott was still the Prime Minister at that point, and he was really sort of raising terrorism. It really felt like we were about to be any day now um, attacked 9-11 style by ISIS or something. Like he really did sort of make that an issue um, and really sort of uh, tried to use it to his political advantage. And um, here we had Zaki Muller sort of asking what seemed to be like, you know, a bit of a naive but a reasonable question to a Liberal MP who totally stonewalled him and turned the uh, issue straight back on him. I think it was something to do with, um, wasn't it just banning uh, someone's visa? Mm-hmm. Banning uh, someone's... Well, it was about revoking citizenship. Revoking citizenship. For people that go and fight, uh, that are convicted of terrorism. Yeah. Look, it's a good question. And I, I do feel that this is an important moment to talk about the other side as well, because I have given quite a bit to George Christensen and other right-wing crazies. It's maybe time to talk about our own side. And I think uh, th- the problem with Zaki Malay is he actually made it a valid point on that show. But, of course, the way he said it was it was so badly worded that you couldn't kind of move on from that. My problem with Zaki Malay is that he is, again, not a Muslim leader. Not that I'm saying, not saying that I am, but he has his own YouTube channel. And he goes on there, just like George Christensen and just like all these other right-wing crazies, goes on there and says stupid stuff to try and drum up his own attention. Uh, So it's the whole, you know, he's controversial and opinionated, right? But for the other side. And I think this is just a mental kind of, well, I'd say it's a a sickness of the soul that both sides have, which is people just want to go on social media, say stuff purely so that they can get attention. And it's the same with Andrew Bolt or Zaki Mala or... Junaid Thorne I was going to say, any, any other cri- it's no yeah. different to Bill O'Reilly doing it with a nightly show on Fox yeah. News where yeah. it's irresponsible to an extent because it's like even though you know better and you're not going to go out and, you know, to- you know, even though probably Bill O'Reilly isn't actually a racist or as racist as some of his segments are, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. He's He knows exactly what he's doing and he's free enough to sort of let that let the Fox News audience Yeah argue and and live with their ignorance for it. And it goes the other way, though. It goes, I mean, you have Muslim hate preachers that go on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube purely to to drum up their own personal brand. Yeah. And what ends up happening is the media now looks at crazy Muslim spokesperson and then you've got, okay, crazy non-Muslim spokesperson and we just focus on that. So maybe that is why when someone like me pops up and they're like, yeah, you're normal. Okay, you know, well, maybe we just need more non-Muslim normal voices. The voice of reason. Well. Yeah, that's right. But, but because all we're exposed to through the media are crazy voices yeah. and normal voices are kind of seen as the exception. So I think whether it's Bill O'Reilly or Zaki Malah, they're just two sides of the same coin. And I would hope that the vast majority of people could see that, that they could see that they're just people that are desperate for attention and will say whatever they can to get that. And much like you said as well, I think his issue there was that, and, and, and it is politics at the end of the day. It's sort of like, here's an opinion, but here's somebody who doesn't know how to manoeuvre it correctly. And although he was, he is there to sort of build up his own personal brand, he is a brand. Yeah. Like he is. And he, I know that some, um, you know, Muslim spokespeople have said, look, we want to use his brand basically to say the right thing, but he's not skilled enough or disciplined enough to be able to respond to what that liberal senator said in a uh, rational fashion. And that's when it became an opportunity for the Abbott government basically to, to basically use that against Q&A as well. Use that against... It just really felt like uh, almost McCarthyism for a second there. It was pretty It was pretty sad. And I think uh, it's hard that how do you... Have, but I think they should have known... Not, I'm not saying... I'm very pro-free speech. I think w- people should say as long as there's a, a right of reply. The, the problem was, I think, with him, you sort of know... He's a known quantity. Like, you go on his YouTube channel and it's some of the stuff that he says is absolutely just ridiculous. Mm. So, to then put him as... I, I still think what he said was valid, but 
there were probably other people that are a bit more experienced that could have said the same thing. And this is the problem with the media today is whether it's me, even having me speak to the media or have Zaki Mullah or have Andrew Bolt or have, uh, you know, Rita Panahi, whatever, none of us are qualified in anything besides talking. Yep. And what has come to our society when Andrew Bolt and Zaki Mullah are seen as valuable, important voices? What happened to the time when actual scholars and actual religious leaders and the elders of our society, uh, you know, could could talk, like, or, or people that we would respect and listen to. Now it's like anyone that's wacky and zacky and bolty and that, it just, yeah, we love you. Like, yeah, we have become feral yeah. as a society where it's like we just applaud the craziest voices. Yeah. But, I mean, if you were not Muslim, would would you have a job right now doing any of this kind of stuff? Would no, you be involved no, no, in the well, media? Well, of course not, because I would just be seen as kind of a random person that's, yeah, just I'll just be random, which I would love. I, would, I mean, there are days you have I views very, very that. similar to mine, yeah. Yeah. but you are somewhat qualified to say it because you come from that perspective, supposedly. But, but I guess to, to, to do a reverse analogy, say we were living in Iran. I don't know why everyone uses Iran as an analogy. And Iran. Yeah. <laughs> Get there. <laughs> and like... You know, we had non-Muslim people blowing stuff up and kind of there was this massive hysteria towards all non-Muslim people. And then you came up and you were like, yeah, I'm a normal non-Muslim that loves to be with friends with everyone else. Then we'll be like, oh, yeah, let's get Dom as the spokesperson. For- <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. That so, might be the my next career move, actually. I think I think you should move to Iran. Yeah. By the way, this pos- podcast is sponsored by Iran. <laughs> That's Iran. <laughs> Yeah, I go I, there. It's not I, I, I ran. I ran. I, as in it's Iraq. An app. It's a, it's a, it's a running. Um, app. <laughs> it's a running app. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, ran. called I ran. I enjoy that thing with with ISIS as well. There's a lot of like TV shows, like Ar- Archer, for instance. Like the whole like the place where they all work is called ISIS. Oh right. This is the, there's a there was the Toyota ISIS car i think john oliver oh, did yes. a segment yes, on as well yes. and isis seems to be the uh one of the biggest buyers of toyota trucks yeah. at the moment it's yeah. quite interesting it's, it's um uh let's shift gears a little bit um we'll still stay on politics but um i wanted to know why we have had a different prime minister every five minutes for the last like five years like what has gone on mm. well personally i blame i feel really bad saying this because i now i sound like a whinger but i i blame the media i think oh I, I think, I, but i blame the culture of because we do again talk about that whole kevin 07 period when everything just mm. fell apart in australian politics now not to say that obviously you know fraser knocked off whitlam and mcmahon knocked off someone else or i can't or he was knocked off or whatever but i like, think people forget crazy. how like like that was my first you know, I was still in high school at that time. That was my first election that I, you know, sort of paid attention to because it was such a big thing. Like you had people in schools, like in my school going like Kevin 07, <laughs> like literally just kind of going like, I actually, for some reason, am enthusiastic about this election. Yeah, right. And he and he spoke in slogans and so did Tony Abbott, right? And what ends up happening is people then expect you to be the saviour. Like people, because what ends up happening with the media is every day we are given a briefing by the media which tells us about all the problems in society. And these people come along and they promise to solve these issues, their problems. What they don't do is explain the complexity of these issues to us and that there are so many things. Kevin Rudd or Tony Abbott cannot be the saviours of our society because... All they can do, they don't control the economy. They don't control the climate. I mean, sure, you can. Yeah, you can they promise you, to. They promise. That's the issue. Pro- that is the key to, word there. That's right. And they, a lot of uh, hope is invested in in them to to on both sides. I think both of them, Rudd and, and Abbott, were sort of the, the mirror of each other to to each other political side. And of course, they come in and they stuff up. So Abbott knights Prince Philip, and everyone's like. You know, WTF, what's going on? You know, or Kevin Rudd has, well, 
a zillion issues. Obviously, with Kevin Rudd, he was just Kevin Rudd, right? Yeah. You, you realize that he's not, you know, Kevin from Queensland here to help. He's actually a bit of a psycho. Yeah, <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he bullies people and he makes, you know, air hostess cry and he does a whole b- and he's late to all his meetings. And, and, and then, you know, we've got Tony Abbott who promises to be this upstanding Rhodes Scholar and then eats onions and does all this <laughs> other stuff that... So oh my god! People- <laughs> just my favorite, but but I missed that when it actually happened in real time. Like I totally, I didn't. I, it was only on his highlight reel, <laughs> very recently when he got uh, replaced by Malcolm Turnbull. That I was like, Did, is he like? So I saw that footage of eating the onion well, for the twice. first time. Yeah, like, but you know, that's just one example. So the hold media- on, did it happen twice? Yeah, he did twice. He ate an yeah. onion twice. Yeah, no, not not even the first time when he was like, I guess not everyone. Had- thinks this is normal but i just just repeated it but he again it's it's this thing right but but we reduce him as well to an onion eater or we reduce um kevin rudd to a guy that makes air hostess cry and runs a dysfunctional kind of cabinet and you know bob hawk who used to get drunk and and you know also left his wife He's an american woman. yeah and like it's just it's kind of but we don't know like or paul keating who would say the most horrendous insults in in parliament mm. we don't really get to we didn't you know tear them as much or there wasn't as much of a kind of promise that they was they were just seen as that's that's the guy whose turn it is and if yeah, they solve well, the problems they solve it if they don't solve you know that's that's it well uh, so i think we've 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 set the bar quite high what I like about Turnbull, where I think he is going to take a risk and what he says he's going to do is explain things to the community a bit better, which would add a whole layer of complexity and a new dimension to politics where we could say, okay, yes, Malcolm Turnbull failed on this issue, but he's explained to us why he failed, as opposed to Kevin Rudd, who kind of just, yeah, or Abbott, which never really explained their failures to us. So the budget's a perfect example with Abbott. Well, yes, they went very hard on the budget, and I think they made a lot of mistakes on there. But their real crime wasn't just that. It was that they never could explain to the community why they went so hard. And it was either that they were heartless bastards or they had a good good reason. And we never heard the good reason, so we just assumed that they were heartless bastards. I mean... You've hit the nail right on the head there, and that's why I was so enthusiastic. And what you said before, it was—it felt like with Car, uh, with um, sorry, Bob Hawke and you know Keating and all that. It's their turn, and there was this sort of we settled. You know, the public sort of settled and went, "That's the guy that's meant to be prime minister right now." Whereas until now, with Turnbull, I don't think I remember feeling that way. I don't think I remember there being almost like a consensus among my friends, among the people that I've, have just come, have just kind of like a, cool, this is the way it's meant to be. With Abbott, certainly didn't feel like that. It felt like a big accident, which by all reports it seems to have been. And with Rudd, I think it was just that the expectations were so high. Everyone was so charmed and so wowed by him. And then with Gillard, I just remember that being a tough time. Like, I just remember that that being a very anxious prime ministership, a very sort of like any day now that's going to end um, no matter what she was doing, unfortunately. Yeah. But, um, I mean, in the killing season, did you watch this? Oh, I love the killing season. Yeah, this is my favourite question to ask everyone at the moment and the <laughs> answers that I've gotten have just absolutely boggled me, boggled my mind. Um, who do you think came out looking better after the killing season between Julia Gillard and uh, Kevin Rudd? Well, that's that's a good question. Um, I tended to flip between the the, the, the series. Um, I think either both of them kind of looked good, um, but I would, or at different times, they either one sort of looked more reasonable than the other. But in the end, I think I would give it to Kevin Rudd, and I say that with a very heavy heart, very heavy heart. <laughs> Don't really want to give it to him. Yeah. Okay. But the the issue was. In the end, I, I came to the belief that, yes, he was really quite dysfunctional as a, as a prime minister, but he, he should have just been able to go to the election and be kicked out or, or re-endorsed. And I think 
it showed that Julie Gillard did not really give him much of an opportunity to turn things around. And there's nothing I hate more than any employer or anyone sacking somebody without giving them, you know, a probation period or even an opportunity to turn it around. So she then looked like she was jumping on an opportunity. I do agree with you there. Like, I think um, my my heart says Julia. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I liked Julia. I really paid attention during that period of politics and I was sort of on her side and she faced a crazy amount of, you know, adversity. Um, a lot of it just because she was a woman, but a lot of it at the end of the day because she put herself in that position mm. as well. And I think I, I agree with you. Like, it, it is interesting to put it, say, in entrepreneurial management company kind of terms. Really, Kevin Rudd was a great personality to have at the head of the party, um, but he wanted to be, you know, a Steve Jobs. He wanted to have his hand in everything and he literally was not capable of doing that, That's trying right. to control an entire country. Exactly. But, you know, like any ambitious employee that sees their opportunity... I think that's what Julia Gillard saw. And if she didn't take that and instead tried to yeah. sit down with Kevin and go, here's the problem, we need, we'll need, do everything we can to help you turn yeah. it around, yeah. the opportunity well, was too well, good to pass Well, well two, two points I just, I just want to add to this. I think the real question that the Labor Party needs to ask itself is why does it keep putting crazy people in leadership <laughs> positions? You've got Mark Latham and Kevin Rudd. Um, you know, Why do you keep doing this? Julie Gillard should have been the leader from the start. The fact that she was deputy makes absolutely no sense because she was head and shoulders above Kevin Rudd. And the fact that she was not the leader is a real uh, bad mark against the Labor Party. The second thing is uh, I think people felt very sorry for Kevin Rudd because of that. P people didn't understand what was going on. While I doubt that Tony Abbott is going to have the same level of sympathy because... Uh, people just don't. I think people know why this happened. Yeah. So I think that's the other interesting thing. So 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 while Julie Gillard was was hunted for for you know doing this horrible thing to Kevin Rudd, I don't think that's going to happen to Malcolm Turnbull. And I think he was a bit more savvy about it. Again, he didn't he didn't promise that it would never happen. So uh, you make a lot of media appearances um, and. You must get some feedback, as you've mentioned a few times. Uh, and with social media taking upon the world, it's so easy for people to give it. But so do you find on Twitter when um, I, I'm more like I've gotten a lot of YouTube feedback before, which I find quite funny. Um, but on Twitter, it's so funny because people tag you in things to let you know how much they hate you. Like, <laughs> let you know how much they uh, don't like what you're wearing or don't like, like, what it, have, what's the most yeah. abusive stuff you've ever gotten? Oh, I, I usually get people, whenever I speak, especially about Muslim things, I get people who, funny enough, like their Twitter accounts usually, like their Twitter picture will be the Australian flag and it will be like proud Aussie patriot, you know, stopping Islam from taking over the country. So they'll, they'll tend to find me and, you know, say things like how I'm really just trying to be a bit of i'm a fraud you know i try and i'm i'm not the real muslim i'm the i'm trying to deceive everyone as the friendly face of islam and really I, my agenda is to support isis and well help them no here. i mean <laughs> are you a real muslim <laughs> I, I feel mean, like you got your papers we, in we, order. We, like should what's do this, we should do this like a Ray Hadley and Scott Morrison. Um, is there a Bible <laughs> that I can swear yeah, on? Can so, you swear on this iPad? There's, there's an iPad. Have you got? It's got the Quran on it, right. no. mate. I'm not going to turn my my faith into a. <laughs> what was that, what was this Why won't you swear on it? Why won't you? Yeah, that's uh, well. That's a good question. It's a good question. No, it's uh, people kind of always have a go at you. I. Uh, it's it's very mixed Twitter because also you get people that kind of. It's split between like adoring fans and then the other side, and quite mm. often they'll start to fight on my own Twitter as well, which is great. So, um, but it makes you be pretty despondent. But then you start to realise that at the end of the day, they're just kind of people who are probably pretty sad and confused, and you're not going to get the best. I mean, my favourite was when um, I tweeted once to Corey Bernardi, and mm -hmm. he he responded thinking I was actually supporting him, and I was like. No, just, <laughs> no, I'm no, um, trying to make a point about something ridiculous that he had said. And then all his followers basically just for the rest of the day kind of started, you know, sending me pictures of honour killings and beheadings and all this stuff. Oh and I was my like, God, was that like, is brutal. It's like, why do 
I have to somehow be equated to this stuff. Like I'm not, that's not, you know, and they just, that's basically that's the whole point of online abuse is how they can portray you as like the most crazy fundamentalist. Well, that well. brings me in fact to uh, my final questions. I like to do a round of quick fire kind of questions to end the show with All right. uh, normally. So uh, not quite word association, just, Tell okay. me what your response is okay. to these, all right? Yeah. Uh, so, firstly, are you on Team Australia or do you want your citizenship revoked, Mo? <laughs> I I am the, I'm the cheerleader. I'm, I'm I'm the cheerleader for Team Australia. I've, I've got the the I've got all the moves. Got the dress. I have got the pom poms. Yeah, Mo's yeah. actually wearing an Australian flag that's, that's today. True. So yeah, I'd say he's. Ter- what, what's the opposite of Team Australia? Like, what am I on? Oh, that's a that, well. It's Team Left Wing sellout, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Tony Abbott. He was great though. I mean, yeah. he was a walking. He was walking pun. <laughs> uh, Team Australia was fantastic. I just the reality because you actually do sit there and go. Um, like I, I am, I'm on Team Australia, right, guys? Right? <laughs> yeah, and they're like, yeah, just just stay on the, the bench there, mate. We'll we'll call you when you need it. <laughs> I think that's why people actually thought he was broken, though, because if you actually heard him outside of soundbite, he was just making soundbites, yeah. and to make a soundbite, you have to say the same thing like fifty times yeah. in a row. My favorite thing. Yeah, and Death Cult was was my other favorite. De- and that's that's the opposite of Team Australia is Death Cult. Death Cult. Yeah, which you're obviously re- you were on. <laughs> that's you're either quite evident yeah. after this, yeah. You're either on Team Australia or the Death Cult. Yeah. So you are meant to be the Muslim voice of reason, but obviously you have a hidden agenda. Mm. When are you thinking of uh, bringing that out? I mean, you've played it really well. You started in, uh, you know, in youth work and mm. moved into politics. You went on The Amazing Race. Everyone loved you. Yeah. I mean, you got us in your hands, Mo. When do you turn around that's and, uh, you know? Well, no, we've already stopped Christmas decorations from being put up, apparently. That's what, what? That's the greatest Muslim achievement of... That's what every talkback radio station likes to go on at Christmas. Pardon? Uh, Can you explain this to me? So so every every Christmas, there's always a story about how a local council has not is not putting up Christmas decorations anymore because they want to appease the muslim pop local muslim population so uh which is always rubbish it's usually because they just don't have any money (laughs) so i mean i feel like that's the greatest victory we've got we've we've stolen christmas i don't think we need to do anything else so that's stopping christmas decorations (laughs) so when's 2011 that's it that's it no when does the mask come off oh it's it's a good question um I've actually got a friend of mine who's got this like real fear that ISIS is going to take out. Is Muslim, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, <laughs> so he's he's like, if ISIS do take over, he's he's. I love this phrase. He's like he's like, like he's like, do I like? What do you do, right? If ISIS actually took over, do you are you kind of like, hey guys, I was. I am. Here's Muslim. all these tweets of me being told that I'm part of you guys, right? <laughs> do you reckon you might let you know? No, I don't. I don't know. I don't think we'll do. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't do that. I just enjoy that phrase. I want to be able to say that one day. So when ISIS takes yeah, over here, right. right? With their Toyotas. With their Toyotas, yeah. It'd be a great day for Toyota. I think like if ISIS like bought Apple or something like that, that's where the real questions would go and be like, mm. oh, but I really like my phone. <laughs> no one wants to use Android. Yeah, I know. I just really don't want to use Android. You know what? And by the way, what um, what phone do you carry with you? Yes, I've actually switched over recently to uh, to Android. Uh, I've got a Samsung so Apple. S6. Yeah, I've... Um, you know, just a bit different. Just, just something a bit. You know, just a bit out there. How is it? It's, it's great. Have what have you say. got? Uh, the S six. The S six. Yeah, oh, otherwise yeah. known as the rip off of the yeah the other iPhone. S, the six S. Yeah, yeah. If you look at the bottom of these, <laughs> yeah, it's I totally, mean, they're totally pretty much identical. Yeah. Yeah, I've got an iPhone myself, and uh, yeah, the camera all right on there. Camera's great. Oh, I love. I, I like the S six. I think Android is really good for like work stuff, so mm. Gmail and Google Docs and all that stuff. Yeah. But it's really annoying because all my friends have iPhones, and I mean all these like iMessages. Like yeah. the, the group, and then once you switch over, Apple punishes you. And I know, kicks you out of iMessage. I just, yeah, it's it just sounds like hell. I've done it once before when I had an Android phone for like a day, and I just like wasn't getting messages. Like mm. because if you've got an iPad or a, a MacBook, and you know you've got iMessage on there, yeah. as long as you've still got that active somewhere, you still get those messages through there. And so some people just don't know that you're. You've switched over your phone, so you just don't get things. Yeah. 
So yeah. they must be all talking about you. Yeah, that's there? right. I'm out in the cold. Yeah. I've been excommunicated from, from I, <laughs> iMessage. Are you even a Muslim anymore? That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's what happens when you're Muslim. They just switch off your iMessage. Yeah. <laughs> I bet you ISIS probably do have. Do you reckon ISIS use Slack? Well, Doesn't well, everyone use Slack? Uh, well, no, this is actually true. This is a true story. I, oh, a true fact. I went to a terrorism conference not too long ago. And when you go to Mo, fight. Yeah, come on. It wasn't run by ISIS. This is happening, isn't it? It's, You're going to turn around one day and be like, you know, now I learned at this terrorism just, conference. Hello. Um, no, no, so uh, this, at this, uh, this conference, they were talking about when you go to join ISIS, there's actually a list that they give you of banned items. And an iPhone is a prohibited device that oh. everyone is told to bring a samsung galaxy s5 uh because oh. they so basically toyota and samsung, samsung like actually worked that out though <laughs> they will fucking do anything i feel like that they're, <laughs> they're pretty desperate they're gonna come out next year with the you know the galaxy s isis like the both of them will be like Yes, ISIS is bad, but they're a successful organization because they use <laughs> Samsung, right? We help everyone. It doesn't matter. You know, it's about us. It's, um, so by the way, this podcast brought to you by Iran <laughs> that's right. and ISIS. It's, uh, and so, so because those, you can take the battery out and kind of not be tracked by the drones yeah. or whatever. So, so there you go. If you're an international terrorist, I uh, highly recommend the S5 Galaxy. <laughs> I don't recommend. I actually recommend you don't be an international terrorist. First I, and foremost. No, you've said it. Or, no, okay. yeah, that's I really want to see some ads with international terrorists. <laughs> like, I actually feel. I just bad. love my Samsung Galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> I think Apple should really jump on that. Actually, it's a big opportunity. Well, that's a whole market that they're losing. Um, uh, when you do, you, are you on Instagram? I am. Yes. What's yeah. your favorite thing to take photos of? Oh, I have done this thing recently. I'm, I. I I could be crazy, and I'm happy for people to call me crazy, but I will just walk down the street and I'll just see, like, you know, a nice shadow or a nice angle or something, a colour that I just like, and I like to take photos of random things. And mm -hmm. my goal is that I don't have that many followers on Instagram, so it's a little bit like a private collection of just interesting things that I've seen. It might be a cloud that I like or a, a park bench or uh, a car. And uh, so I just, I, I've actually a Toyota, I, a Toyota, <laughs> Samsung, right? Just to send to the brothers overseas. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I. Um, Is there an uh, ISIS filter? I reckon that'll be the moment when there's some sort of ISIS filter well, on Snapchat or Instagram. They're very active on. They are very savvy. Things, they're yeah, very so. tech savvy. Yeah, that's why I'm off. I've actually quit Facebook recently, and I'm kind of. I'm not sure about Twitter. It's just so depressing, those mediums. And I like Instagram because it's just simple. There's no politics. Everyone likes yeah. Instagram, though. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Unless, I mean, they're try people are trying to make it political, but I just don't follow anyone political on Instagram. It's, it's, it should be a sacred space. Mm. And you can make it whatever you want. That's what I love yeah, about it. Exactly. Um, were you on MSN? Messenger? I was, yes. Oh. Yeah. I like those days. Many yeah. many friendships formed on MSN. I feel like messaging messaging has never been the same since. <laughs> it's never been as good. And I was saying to a friend yesterday, it just doesn't end now. Like, because you can't. I did. I think I did a few weeks ago where I was like, anyway, I've got to go do something. So, and they were just like, what are you doing? Are you like leaving this? You've got your phone with you, <laughs> exactly. yeah? It's like just, it never ends anymore. Like exactly. you constantly got to be, what was your MSN name? Oh, that's a good question. I, oh, I, I think it was. Oh, I can't remember. I it was. It was a long time ago. I'm sure like, did you have like your name, or was it like numbers mixed with like? No, I, I had a pseudonym, but I, I. God, it was a long time ago. But my favorite thing about MSN was B B R B. Yeah. Because you 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 didn't know what was going on if you were just kind of if you were just cut, you just that's it. B R B is like the most heartless thing you could say to someone what do you mean but you always came back if it was b.i.b well, i think g2g was like gotta oh, go yeah, yeah that was like i'm out <laughs> that's i got another thing doing yeah. your well, best friend is here and we're gonna hang out. B -B was but you didn't know how long they would be gone for so you didn't know if you, you just, should go you and get your life there and yeah, wait yeah but you didn't know like well should i pop out and get a cup of coffee or yeah. do I have to what you know like what's going on like yeah actually I think that was a big thing like because you know for me it was like a desktop in the back <laughs> of our house you know what I mean yeah. and you'd come home it would be like late at night and you'd and, and, but say if you left the computer to go get a cup of tea or something you came back and you see a window that's open going <laughs> hey hey <laughs> you know what I'm going that's and you're just like I've just missed my friend a lot of friendships probably broke on MSN that's true I lost a lot of friends yeah, that's why um, it's 5pm afternoon or evening 
Well, it depends on your lifestyle. I I think in in summer it's you you want to go out and enjoy. You still want to enjoy the day. So like for me, five pm is when I go to the beach on on the way home from work. Really? So it's afternoon for me. Yeah, but in winter, five pm is when I'm having dinner and like rucked up and ready to go to bed at seven pm. It's the so. transition hour. Everyone's got a different answer for this, but yeah. me, it's evening. Come on, it's wow. pm. It's it's night time. The news is beginning. I mean, it, it depends on your lifestyle. If you don't watch the news, then there's still a lot going on. I guess, yeah, it's, you know, Q&A starting in three hours. So, yeah, it's definitely. <laughs> yeah. If you don't watch the news, if you don't know the clock, it's whatever time you want it to be. Um, are boys more racist than girls? Uh, I don't think so. I, 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 th- I think it's pretty equal. Of It's, it's uh, quite shared between the Equality. sexes. Equality. There we go. That's right. Women are, have earned the right to be just as racist as men. Oh, my God. No, and I genuinely think, uh, you know, there's a lot of Jackie Lambie and a few others that kind of... I think women are actually probably even more prominent uh, in the media. Those with Pauline Hanson, you know. That's true. Not yeah, a whole man. party there. Yeah. <laughs> Pauline, you say that like it's a big revelation. Pauline Hanson, not a man. <laughs> Surprising. The acceptable um, face of feminist racism. <laughs> and final question, who was your favourite Australian Prime Minister? Oh, that's a great that's a great question. Um, and I would have to say, uh, look, definitely. Well, it is Malcolm Turnbull. But if we were going to go historically, um, I think I would say it's actually Fraser. Was, I don't think Fraser was as evil as many people make him out to be. But I'm going to have to go with Keating just because he was kind of. A bit of a visionary, and he had an imagination that we just don't see in politics anymore. And I didn't really like him for all the insults that he threw in Parliament. I know people love those. I think I love him for that. (laughs) I know people love him, but I just, I think his greatest, and I think it's important to also remember that he was saying things at the time that were blowing people away, like, we should get closer to Asia, which in hindsight is probably the most important statement a foreign, uh, sorry, a prime minister has ever made in this country, um, which has also died off since because we've lost our vision. So um, I think, yeah, it was a shame that Keating kind of was, and I think that's what killed him in the end was he was seen as out of touch and a bit too aloof and he would have, I think our country would have gone a really different way if he had been re-elected in 96. But mind you, how many years was he Prime Minister, though? Only, uh, what, four or five? But yeah. that's why, yeah, looking yeah. back on it now, like that still feels like a long time yeah. now, yeah. especially with what we've dealt with over the last, like, five years. It's crazy. <laughs> exactly. um, no, I totally agree with you there. That's really interesting. Well, Mo, thank you so much for stopping by today. Yeah, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it as well. And um, we'll have you on again very soon. Sounds good. <laughs> Muhammad Alasi there. Next week, actor Josh Robson joins me to talk about the highs and lows of touring a musical, his biggest screw-up on stage, and why the world premiere of King Kong the Musical, which he was in, didn't work.